was committed to getting up early in the morning and spending time in prayer. Hmm. And he believed that prayer was absolutely essential if we were going to stay closely connected to the Lord. So his prayer life was huge. And then he, he wrote a lot. Uh, his prayer life shaped him. I mean, he, he not only prayed for people, he prayed and listened to God speak to him about things. So it was a two-way street, if you will. This, 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 this is a way Let's be honest. Talking about our faith, it can get hard sometimes. Sometimes we get caught up in the world, but now the world will have to get caught up in us. We're here to talk about it. We're here to talk about our real faith. We're here to talk about the real God. For unapologetic apologetics everywhere, welcome to Tactical Faith Radio. Uh, Dr. Dorsey was wild Dorsey, one of my favorite, if not the favorite, sorry, other beats and people that might be listening my favorite professor when I was in seminary a long time ago. Uh, his classes were one that me and my, my friends would look forward to. Uh, we would leave the class not only just, he just edified mentally and edified spiritually and just ready to go out and do God's work. Um, today I've asked Dr. Dorsett to come along and I wanted to ask him a couple of questions regarding C.S. Lewis. Uh, this is uh, Lewis was somebody that's near and dear to my heart. Um, but also, Dr. Dorsett spent time at the Wade Center up in Wheaton, um, you know, thinking about Lewis, bring, you know, researching about Lewis and his wife, Joy Davis. And, and also, he wrote uh, a few books on it, one being the secret, I think it's Seeking the Secret Place, right? The Spiritual Formation of C.S. Lewis, um, which That's is a, right. a fantastic book. So let me ask you, tell me a little bit of uh, how you got into C.S. Lewis. Um, you could talk about your background, too. But what is it that drew you to C.S. Lewis? Well, uh, I was, uh, I have a, uh, I have three degrees in history, a B.A., M.A., and a Ph.D. in history. And I taught American history for a number of years. I taught at the University of Southern California, University of Colorado. And I had a job teaching American history at the University of Denver. And I, in class, I made a comment one day that uh, caused a student to uh, wait and talk to me after class. And he said, uh, Professor Dorsett, did I understand you today in your lecture say to say that intelligent people are not Christians? I said, no, I did not say that. I said, intelligent, thoughtful people are not Christians. And he uh, he said, oh, well, thank you, sir. And he started walking towards the door. And then he turned around, stopped and said, uh, Professor, have you ever read any books by G.K. Chesterton or C.S. Lewis? And I said, no, I haven't. I'm aware of both of them. I, I know their names, but I haven't read anything that they've written. And he said, well, um, I would just challenge you to... Uh, look at those men, very intelligent, yet deeply committed to Christ. Well, the next class period, he comes and he hands me a little envelope. And he said, uh, I want you to have this. And I opened it up and in it was a 
was a book, a paperback book, uh, one of Chesterton's books. And uh, he had written on the inside of it uh, that uh, he, that he hoped that the book would move me towards Christ. And uh, <clears throat> it was a... Uh, it really touched me for this reason. I knew this young man didn't have any money. He was he was really he was a poor kid and he was hoping to be his goal was to become a missionary in Asia somewhere. And he was uh, a full-time student at the uh, University of Denver working on a master's degree. And I just knew he didn't have any money and uh, he uh but he bought me a book and I knew that cost him. I mean, he just, if, you know, if frankly, if you and most of the students I've had at Beeson bought me a book, I, I'd be very touched, but I wouldn't figure they were going to miss some meals for it. Well, this guy could not afford it, but he bought me this book. And uh, inside he thanked me for, uh, for teaching him and, he hoped that uh, this book would move me towards uh, towards uh, towards Christ, and uh, and then under his name, and he signed his name Lauren Fister, and under it was a there was a cross over on one side, and something that looked like a little croquet wicket with little spurs sticking up out of it, and then an arrow coming out of it. And I, I thanked him. I said, well, Lauren, it was kind of you to buy this book for me. I know you can't afford that. And I said, I want to know what's this doodling under your name? He said, oh, sir, I'm glad you asked that question. He said, uh, that cross is the cross they hung our Lord on. And he said, that thing that you said looked like a croquet wicket is the grave they put him in. And he said, three days after they put him in there, he walked right out. And he's been alive ever since. <clears throat> and I said, oh, I'm sorry I asked the question. I kind of joked with him, wrote it off. And a week or so later, he said, sir, would you let me buy your lunch? There's a little cafe I'd like to introduce you to. Would you please let me buy your lunch? And I said, Lauren, I tell you, if it's important for you to go to this little cafe, because it had a bookshop with it, uh, I'll buy lunch, and you uh, introduced me to the cafe. So we went there, and it was a little Christian cafe. And in those days, I was a drinking man, and I also smoked. And uh, went into this restaurant, had lovely little tables with uh, red and white, and blue and white checkered tablecloths, nice little restaurant that had a little bookshop next to uh, inside of it. And when we got in there, I noticed, first of all, uh, and this was, you know, in the early 1970s, and there was a big sign, no smoking, which kind of hacked me off. And then when we got ready to eat, I said, I wanted to get a glass of wine. And the waitress said, oh, we don't sell any alcoholic beverages. I said, Lauren, what kind of a dive is this? You know, I can't smoke. I can't get a drink. He said, well, sir, the food's really good, very reasonably priced. Anyway, we had the fact that this young man, and I didn't let him buy lunch, but that he wanted to, that he bought me a book. And I read that book. And in that book, 
Chesterton made a statement. He said, after I became a Christian, I understood why I always felt homesick at home. Well, that phrase jumped out and grabbed me because that's what I, I was homesick at home. And I moved a lot trying to find a place where I felt at home. I, I taught at the University of Southern California, left there after a couple of years, went to the University of Missouri, St. Louis, went to the University of Colorado, and I was then at the University of Denver, always looking for a place where I felt more comfortable. Where, you know, I, I was looking for home. And Chesterton said, I understood why I've always been homesick at home. And I thought, no one has ever made a statement that so succinctly put what I feel inside. I'm homesick, even though I'm home. And of course, he was saying, this world is not our home. We're homesick for heaven. That's where we belong, and that's where we're heading. Anyway, that he bought me that book, and he, uh, that book by Chesterton, he then challenged me to read some C.S. Lewis, and I read Mere Christianity in the wake of, of our conversation. And, uh, the, you know, the Lord was, was after me. I, I was, I was cornered at that point. I, between Chesterton and Lewis, because I'd always said intelligent people who are reflective are not Christians. I mean, Chesterton and C.S. Lewis, it became apparent to me as I read their things, had brilliant minds, much brighter than I am. And yet they were devout Trinitarian Christians. So anyway, that young man um, was instrumental in my conversion later. About four years later, I surrendered to Christ, and I wanted to thank him. He'd gone on from the University of Denver and gotten a Master's uh, of Divinity at Denver Seminary. And I went down there to inquire if they knew, had an address for him. They said no, that he uh, he had he'd gone to the mission field and he was inside he was behind the iron curtain somewhere in Asia and no one knew how to reach him so I felt very sad that I couldn't thank him but a number of years later uh, I was long story short the Lord led me to write a biography of C.S. Lewis's wife Helen Joy Davidman you you may know of that book it became a movie called uh, Shadowlands. Anyway, the story of Helen Joy Davidman, uh, C.S. Lewis's wife, her story, her conversion. And uh, anyway, uh, I, well, I could go on and on about this, but the point is I wanted to thank this young man. And I wanted to reach him, but I couldn't find him. Nobody knew where he was. He was behind the Iron Curtain. But I, I went on and because of my interest in Lewis and his impact on me, and I wrote the biography of his wife, I was asked to go to Wheaton College to give some lectures on C.S. Lewis and his wife. Long story short, they ended up offering me a job, and I left the secular academic world and took a job at a four-year Christian college. And uh, it was one of those things where I... I never would have expected to do that. It was 
the chairman of the history department at the University of Denver told me when I accepted the job, he said, you have committed professional suicide. He said, you're leaving a research professorship at a good secular university and going to a four-year Christian liberal arts college. He said, you will. He said, professionally, you're dead. And he said, uh, you will find that you're entering a very narrow world. Well, the truth was I was entering I had students from all over the world because many of them were missionary kids. <laughs> I, there was more diversity at Wheaton than there ever was at the secular schools where I taught. And uh, anyway, I'm going on and on, but the point is, we went. Uh, I went to Wheaton to do research on Lewis's wife. They ended up offering me a job, and I ended up taking it, even though I took a big pay cut to go there. But it was all God's will, and Mary ended up becoming the college archivist and my wife started discipleship groups with co-eds and to this day she gets letters and texts and emails and phone calls from young women all over all over the place all over the nation and on many mission fields thanking her for discipling them so we moved there and she had a tremendous ministry so like thinking about Lewis now, like it, uh, there's so many stories like yours. Uh, I actually talked with somebody last week about this who they were brought to Christ after reading because I teach apologetics at a at a, at a little local seminary, and one of the students uh, told me that mere Christianity was 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 critical uh, to them accepting the faith. Uh, yet within the church itself, uh, I hear among theologians and also philosophers in the Christian world that Lewis himself was not a theologian and or a philosopher. And then there's others, of course, now that talk about Lewis as if, you know, he held some really uh, wacky fringe beliefs. Uh, and that might be so, but the reality is there's something about the plain way, the powerfully plain way he wrote. And even when he, you, you refer to even Chesterton, Chesterton's way of talking in his paradoxes are talking in ways that reach a incredibly broad audience, and then they pull out those certain people that were seeking like you. So what I mean, do you agree that that Lewis, in his was it his style, was it his willingness to be open? I know he had countless letters and correspondence where he was willing just to meet people where they were. Do you think is that is that the longevity, the powerful, persuasive longevity of Lewis? Yeah, I I would say this. Uh, Lewis uh, Lewis became a Christian, and uh, he was already uh, he was a he wasn't a full professor. That we use the word professor here in this country quite different from the way they do in England. He was a lecturer. He ultimately became a professor. But anyway, Lewis was. Uh, was asked, and once the word was out that he'd become a Christian, he was asked to do a series of broadcast talks on BBC radio. And these talks that he gave um, became so popular and people were in demand to hear them again and again that uh, eventually they were published. And... Uh, there were various individual books uh, beyond personality and on and on. But then what becomes mere Christianity uh, is really uh, 
a blending of these various talks together. And it's uh, any by mere Christianity, he meant basic rather than, oh, you know, we use the word, well, merely this as if it's nothing. He says it's mere Christianity. In other words, just Christianity, nothing else. And uh, he, uh, these broadcast talks were for ordinary people who were not, were not believers, intelligent people, thoughtful people, but were not Christians. And so he had these talks to point people to Christ. And uh, they became so effective, they were ultimately published as little booklets. And then eventually they, in a bridge, I mean, edited form became mere Christianity. And it's still a hugely widespread <laughs> distributed book. It sells on and on and on. Yeah, I mean, it, it's incredibly powerful. So I'm going to ask you this, though, when it comes to Lewis and you've done a lot of research on him, give me one thing that stands out in terms of uh, Lewis and spiritual formation, maybe even Lewis and evangelism. What, what can we learn today as Christians on the spiritual formation side and in reaching other people? Well, I think, first of all, um, Lewis, once he surrendered to Christ, became a man of prayer. And he, um, he prayed faithfully. Uh, in fact, every morning he spent quite a bit of time in prayer before he would go to the university over to Magdalen College in Oxford and do his lectures and meet with students. And uh, I years ago decided to do an oral history project and I was able to get a nice grant. My wife and I traveled throughout the United Kingdom for five summers interviewing people that knew Lewis, people that had been students of his or colleagues or friends or whatever. And uh, one of the things we learned over and over again is that people that knew him well knew that he was a man of prayer. For example, he, Lewis never drove. He, he didn't own a car and he didn't know how to drive. So he had a, uh, there was a private taxi driver that he would hire and he'd come and pick him up every morning and drive him to the university and drive him back home in the evening. And Mary and I interviewed this guy and he told us, he said one morning, and he said, he said, Mr. Lewis was such a kind man. He said, he'd get in the car and every morning driving to campus, he said, I just talked to him. He said, I'd pick his brain and ask him questions and so forth. And he said he was so patient with me. And he said one morning he got in and he said, uh, my friend, please don't ask me any questions. I, I, some interruptions came this morning and I haven't been able to finish my prayers. So I just need to finish my prayers while we're driving to campus. And uh, so this gave me a glimpse of things. And then I found letters where he wrote to people who would ask him about his prayer life. And I realized that he committed, he was committed to getting up early in the morning and spending time in prayer. And he believed that prayer was absolutely essential if we were going to stay closely connected to the Lord. So his prayer life was huge. And then he, he wrote a lot. Uh, his prayer life shaped him. I mean, he, he not only prayed for people, he prayed and listened to God speak to him about things. 
So it was a two-way street, if you will. Wow. Well, that's uh, something we could all learn from. Is that something you found in your life uh, in terms of, of the power of prayer? I know that's something that's always been a little bit more difficult for somebody like me, um, being able to pray and, and, and really even hold to the fact that prayer has real power. So to have somebody like that's an intellectual like Lewis and then learn about that prayer was so important. I mean, it's, it's kind of, ch it changes the way you view it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it does. And I, you're, you're probably aware of the little book I wrote entitled seeking the secret place, the uh, uh, spiritual formation of CS Lewis. And the, Lewis talked about, he said, you know, Jesus would get up or we learn in the gospels, Jesus got up early in the morning and went off to a secret place so he could pray. And he said, if Jesus needed this, how much more do I need it? So yeah. he made a decision based upon the Gospels. Uh, I'm supposed to follow Jesus. Jesus felt a need to pray all the time. Yeah, I remember and, uh, he. I remember teaching that book at Hunter Street Baptist here in Birmingham. Uh, we did a whole semester on your book. And you, you, you had made the point to you had actually pointed out in his biography, like in a biographical way, um, some of the challenges that even happened in his own life. Uh, like I never put two and two together that his mother, of course he lost the two most significant women in his life to cancer. And I would assume prayer was maybe not when he was younger, but when he was older, prayer had to be one of those things that helped him through that. Cause that's, that's hard to, to his life was almost bookend by by deaths of significant women. And uh, we, yes, we, yes. We had a class on, you know, speculating what part did prayer play in, in really getting dealt a pretty hard deck, <laughs> you know? Well, I think, uh, you know, Lewis fully understood that things weren't easy for Jesus. Why would they be easy for us? Mm. Uh, he, Jesus' followers have always been reviled and persecuted. Um, you know, Satan goes after those who love the Lord. And he went through a pretty difficult and, uh, century. I mean, you think about him being in the war, uh, in World War I, uh, as a uh, medic, right? And then uh, he... You know, no, he was no, he was an infantry officer. Oh, he was, he was an infantry a officer. Platoon leader. Okay. Yeah. So he saw it as much he probably saw it uh war down and dirty as much as Tolkien did. Oh, he did. In fact, Lewis was wounded. Okay. And, uh, the only reason he probably survived as an infantry officer in World War One is he got wounded and pulled off the front lines and sent back to England to uh to get healed. Yeah, you mentioned That's what, what saved his life. That that whole generation that that was affected by World War One, and then he got to see the rise of Nazi Germany, and then he has to speak during the war. Uh, very kind of violent century that he was a part of. So, I mean, that's right. So, so to think about the last twenty years of my life and not having to look at those issues, you know, like that, but understanding that there's things that Lewis can teach us even today. Yeah, not to not to talk about you know some of the things that are happening around in, in America, but me and you both know, and we've talked about this before in your class and other times. We just live in a different culture, a, a, an almost post-Christian culture, 
Uh, what do you think? There's things that we can glean from Lewis, who lived through some pretty horrendous things. Are there ways that we can talk about Jesus to others that might be persuasive? And and is Lewis is can Lewis help us in that regard? I think so. I think Lewis can help us because he, uh, you know, he. I think it was somewhere, maybe in a letter or an interview I did with somebody that knew Lewis, one of his former students or somebody talked about how how he uh, opened the eyes of his mind and heart by saying, you know, chapter one of Second Corinthians, Paul writes that the Lord, Paul writes to the Corinthians the Lord has allowed me to suffer so that I can minister more effectively to you. Mm. And, mm. Uh, you know, wow. If you think about, you know, uh, the apostle Paul didn't get angry with the Lord because he suffered. Hmm. He realized God allowed him to suffer so it could be used to minister to other people who suffered. Wow. Yeah. And uh, I think, you know, we have way too much in the western world because we've been comfortable we haven't been devastated by war in north america a lot of europe survived you know pretty well and uh you, you know we we fall into prosperity theology thinking that if we're god's people we don't suffer well that's wow. not what the bible tells us wow Man, I Jesus said, in the that. world, you will have tribulation. Jesus said, in the world, you will have tribulation. But be hopeful. I've overcome the world. So you, I could see that as such a motivation for him, too, going through and reflecting on his mother's death almost as a preparation to deal with Joy's death. Um, That's right. Wow. Well, he, he's, his mother died and his closest friend died in the war. That's right. <laughs> uh, wow. So that had to wow to have a to have a worldview that that makes sense of suffering that way. If you're willing to put your knee down and and have a life of prayer and reflection and a life devoted to Christ, well, I never thought about it that way. Where it really does kind of focus suffering as a means to understand somebody else's suffering. That had to be some of the motivations for why he's he was so willing to correspond to so many people. You've told me before, there's just, there's so many letters out there that he wrote to people. Um, that I mean, it's almost a challenge to know how much is out there and how many, how, he must have written folks all the time because he was just willing to be open and honest with people. He, uh, he got, during the prime of his life was getting 200 to 250 letters a week. Huh. And he answered, every, he answered all the mail. In fact, two or three letters I found where Lewis said, I always answer. And somebody wrote and said, I'm sure you don't have time to answer me. I'm one of your fans. And Lewis wrote back and said, I always answer fan mail. Wow. And uh, Owen Barfield, who was uh, one of Lewis's closest friends, Mary and I got to do oral history interviews with him. And he said that, uh, Lewis said to him one time, he said, you know, this morning I was praying. I said, Lord, if you didn't have me, he said, I was praying this morning and the Lord told me, answer every piece of fan mail that comes to you. Wow. 
And he one morning in frustration, he said, if I didn't have all these letters to answer, I could write more books. What he didn't know was that his letters would become some of the most important books he was writing. That's so fun. He had no idea. So yeah. he was obedient. And in the wake of the obedience came great fruit that he didn't understand, but he did remain obedient. Answer the letters. He kept answering them. And isn't it fun his, that, isn't it fun that, I mean, even though he was a pretty committed Anglican, his, the way that he acted became almost, almost Christ-like in the sense that I know Catholic friends that, that almost claim Lewis. I know Baptist friends that, you know, are like, you know, he, a lot of the ways that he writes is persuasive in the lower evangelical end of the ladder. I mean, it's, it's almost as if it's not like denominationalism didn't matter, but he was walking in and out of all these different Christian camps and almost to the point where he's, his views and opinions are accepted. That's almost a, an incredible model to follow. Um, don't you, I mean, I see that. Oh, it is. I mean, you, you were that way. I mean, even though you're committed, you know, into the world that you were committed to and you preached forever, I mean, I, I saw you firsthand be able to talk to so many different kinds of people. I mean, that was that was kind of the ecumenical approach that I always wanted to follow. And I never really thought about it till I'm talking with you that, that Lewis really had that and was devoted to it. Yes, he did. And see, Lewis understood, and he didn't use this particular rhetoric, rhetoric but uh, Malcolm Muggridge, who was a contemporary of his, said this to one time, Mary and I were visiting Malcolm Muggridge and his wife in England doing some oral history interviews. On the mantle of their fireplace, he had a photograph of, of uh, Mother Teresa and, uh, and one of the woman who was head of the Salvation Army at the time. And I mean, you can't get a lot farther apart as Christians than, than an Anglican <laughs> than an Anglican woman and then another woman who's head of the Salvation Army, uh, I mean a Roman Catholic woman, a Roman Catholic woman who believes in seven sacraments. The Salvation Army doesn't believe in any. Huh. Yet he had pictures of both of them on the mantle of his fireplace. <laughs> and I said, these are strikingly different women. How do you explain this? Different regiments of the same army, my man. And I thought, what a brilliant way to see it. Yeah, that's awesome. And I, I you know, if you're in a tank regiment, if you're in a tank regiment, you're not a paratrooper. You know, you're not infantry. But we need them all. Amen. Amen. And and in fact, maybe moving forward, that's even those words are even more important as we move into a post Christian like culture that is becoming more pagan. I wouldn't say atheist. I'd just say more pagan and further away yep. from the gospel truth. But those people, those lost people, because of the way that God has created us, they're going to need a, they're going to want and desire the gospel message. And if we just think in terms of an ecumenical partnership where distinctives are important, but these mere principles are what are going to get people saved. Um, that's what kind of gets me excited about, you know, I know a lot of people are bleak about the future, but I'm, I understand the challenges, but there's always been challenges. Uh, I just think, of course, 
people like you and people like Lewis have always been good models for me to remain Christ-centered and to understand the stiff, the issues that we have moving forward, but also to lock hands with our brothers and sisters because we got the truth. And uh, that's it. The other thing is that people don't talk about a lot is his, his fiction work. I mean, you're hearing like these days, people talk about Brave New World in 1984, but that he has strength in a lot of ways speaks about the world we live in more than any other, uh, than just as much as 84 and Brave New World does. Uh, so Lewis's fiction is, is worth, you know, most people just think about, you know, his Narnia series, but his space trilogy stuff, and you know, is, is fantastic. So he, he, him as, as well as Chesterton really had their pulse on where they thought uh, Western world was headed after they detached themselves to a degree uh, to biblical foundations and embrace a more secular kind of scientism moving forward. They saw where things were headed. And so for those sure. that are listening, I mean, his, his space trilogy is, is, is well worth reading. Um, so. Amen. Hey, thank you so much for coming on. I, in fact, the more, the more I talk to you, the more I realize we got to do this again because you're the guy who turned me on um, another uh, important writer in my life who is G. Campbell Morgan. Like, I love G. Campbell Morgan. Uh, probably just as Isn't much. Isn't he great? Oh, incredible. And I, I use his, him as much as I use Lewis these days when I go to craft a sermon. Um, but you are... You are, have been, are, and continue will be a well of, of information and knowledge. And uh, uh, I love you, brother. I've, I always enjoy talking with you. And I hope you have a great Christmas and New Year's. Well, Matt, I love you. You're a dear brother. And I, uh, I'm so glad that uh, we live in the same city. And once this pandemic is gone let's get together now and then and i'd like you to come over sometime and bring your airedale over so mary can mary and i could meet him oh duke duke for those who don't know uh dr dorsey used to talk about his airedales and when it came to getting a new dog uh that's i i mean god had told me matt you're getting an airedale for your family and uh, <laughs> we've had we've had duke the airedale for two and a half years and uh what a breed and uh, I can't look at, I actually think, and I hope you don't take this the wrong way. I think you were with Airedale so long that you actually look like an Airedale. So every time I see <laughs> well, my Airedale, I, I say, oh my goodness, it's Dr. Dorset. So. Well, I got to tell you one thing, if you got a minute to hear yeah, it. Sure. My wife and I, we lived in Boulder, Colorado, because I taught at the university out there. And anyway, long story short, the Boulder newspaper, the Boulder Daily Camera, decided to run a, uh, they, they had a prize contest and they wanted to have a dog master lookalike contest. <laughs> and they wanted to, they were going to give an award, a $50 award to the man that live man or woman that lived most like their dog, looked most like their dog. Well, Mary took a picture of me and I'll tell you, I looked like my Airedale. Uh, and she forgot to mail it in. <laughs> the guy that won it, he didn't look nearly as much like his dog as, as I did. And uh, we laughed and said we really needed that $50, and, and we, we lost it. But, no, a lot of people said, wow, you look a lot like your Airedale. And I said, I take that as a compliment. 
because people would say, I hope it doesn't insult you, but you look like your dog. I said, oh, I take that as a great compliment. <laughs> you, can't, you couldn't say that to my wife, but you can say that to me. So it's a whole different conversation. I'll tell Amen. you what, I, I will send you a picture of me with a $50 bill because you and my Airedale, um, because you should have won that a long time ago. Uh, no, you you say you save that money for your for your family. But anyway, <laughs> when once this pandemic's gone, I want you to come over and bring the uh, bring the Airedale so Mary and I can talk to him. Well, I tell you what you've done for me today, which is to, to a daily re, uh, recommitment to prayer, uh, a daily recommitment to my Lord, and uh, and also not only a longing to be with you, uh, but what what hope it's going to be to be in eternity. Uh, together and even seeing people like Lewis and others um, who will be bowing their knee and in joy and in reverent joy and fear and we get to have a future of uh, of timelessness together how, how awesome that will be oh isn't it wonderful yeah and boy I want other people to have that that same hope that me and Dr. Dorset have and, uh, if there's anything I can do for you between now and then just let me know uh, but if you, if people that are listening, it's, it's L-Y-L-E Dorset, D-O-R-S-E-T-T. His books uh, can be found on Amazon and, and they're well worth uh, seeking out and reading. Uh, he also uh, has a, if you Google his name, he's got plenty of stuff online that he has done in the past. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. God bless you, my brother. Thanks for giving me the privilege. <laughs>